Good morning. Our passage for this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So turn with me to the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, you listen to a passage like that read, and you sit there and you listen to those words, and you begin to realize that more than likely that passage that you just heard isn't going to win any awards for the feel-good passage of the year. I mean, you don't sit there and listen to the words of Jesus and get this warm and fuzzy feeling inside. I mean, the words that you just heard, those words are meant to challenge us and even make us feel a little bit uneasy. That's the whole point. So if you're a little uncomfortable, like, welcome to the club. I mean, there's just this, that's the point of what this passage is supposed to feel like. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why do you find a passage like this at this particular point in the book of Luke? One thing you may have noticed as we've gone through this book, and the more Jesus teaches, the more he heals people, the more miracles he performs, the more and more people follow him. And so what's happening is the further we go along in the book, the larger the crowds are that begin to gather around Jesus and follow him and to hear him teach. So now that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, what's happening is he leaves one city and news travels out ahead of him that Jesus is coming. And so by the time he gets to the next city, there's already a large crowd of people gathered waiting on him to get there. And that's exactly what you have going on in this passage this morning. If you look at verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And so what happens is Jesus leaves one city as he's headed to Jerusalem, and a crowd goes with him. And then when he gets to the next city, another crowd is there already waiting on him to arrive. And so the reason you have this passage here at this point in the book of Luke is Jesus understands perfectly what's going on in the hearts of all of these people crowding around from place to place 
following him. And he knows that there are people that are committed to physically be in his presence and to walk by his side and to follow him right there beside him, day in and day out, city by city. But yet he also understands at the same time, even though they're committed to be by his side in his physical presence, he knows that in their heart, they are not committed to him at all. And so that's why you have a passage like this this morning. The reality is, you can come to a church like this for years and years and years. You can get really, really involved. You can go to a discipleship community that we have. You can come to prayer gatherings. You can literally do anything and everything that we would ever do as a church together. Doing those things doesn't necessarily mean that you're following Jesus or that you're a Christian. And you come to a passage then like this that we have before us this morning, and this is where you get your answer. This passage shows us very clearly what it looks like to follow Jesus, to believe in Him, to receive Him, to be His disciple. In this passage, you get this beautiful, detailed description of what real, authentic faith in Jesus really looks like. And so if you look at this passage and the actual way that it's laid out, what you find is the first thing Jesus does is he gives us two pictures of what it looks like to follow him, to be his disciple, to have faith in him. And you find those in verse 26 and in verse 27. And then in verse 28 through verse 32, Jesus invites us to stop and think about what I just told you. Did you hear what I said? And so if the two pictures he gave us in verse 26 and verse 27 are true, that means that following him is going to be costly. And so he gives us in verse 28 through verse 32 two different pictures that show us what it looks like to follow him and how following Jesus is very costly. And then you come to verse 33, and what verse 33 is, is he takes verse, 27, verse 26 and verse 27, and just in case we were asleep, he restates everything he just says, but he says it in a different way to make his point again. But then he also does another thing. He gives us, in verse 33, a third picture of what it looks like to follow him, to believe him, and to trust him. And then finally, all of this is brought to a conclusion in verse 34 and verse 35 with a very serious and a very sobering warning that deals with salt. And so look at verse 26. Jesus begins and he says, if anyone comes to me. Everything that Jesus says in this passage deals with coming to him. And so when he says that, he means following him, believing in him, being his disciple, having faith in him. That's what everything in this passage is about. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is real, authentic faith 101. I mean, that's what it is. Now, it's interesting, verse 26, verse 27, and verse 33, they all start the exact same way. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone, verse 27, he says, whoever, 
And then in verse 33, he says, so therefore anyone. The things that Jesus says about what faith looks like in this passage, they don't just apply to a pastor, to an elder, to a missionary that goes off somewhere and dies as a martyr for Jesus. They don't just apply to someone that's been a Christian for 30 or 40 years of their life. What Jesus says in these verses apply to anyone and everyone that would ever come to him and put their faith in him. So if you're alive and you're breathing, this passage applies to you. It's not a joke. It's serious. Now look at the way all three of these passages end. Look at the end of verse 26. He gives this picture, and then he says, He cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, he says it again. He cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, he says the same thing. He cannot be my disciple. Over and over and over. He gives a picture, he gives another picture, and then he gives one more, and then he ends it with the same thing. Often what we do with a passage like this is we interpret it to where you have, like on the one hand, normal Christianity, and then you have radical Christianity. And so radical Christianity is where the missionary moves across the world and they die as a martyr somewhere. And so oftentimes we take radical Christianity and that's what this passage is applying about. And that's for the missionary that would go die for Jesus somewhere. But the funny thing is, is you read this and you don't get that from Jesus anywhere in this passage. See, to Jesus as he unfolds this passage, all Christianity is radical. And really, as he goes through this, this to him, the things he describes here about faith, this is normal, routine, regular Christianity. This is literally like signing your name on your test paper at school. That's what it is to Jesus. It's that normal. It's that routine. And the reality of this is, this is so normal to Jesus that it's, you either follow me like this, you either have faith like this, or you go to hell. That's essentially what he's saying. You either follow me like this, or you are not my disciple. That's what he says. Now look at verse 26. Now that everyone's uncomfortable and really awake. There's a word there in that verse, and I'm sure as this passage is being read, there's a word that just jumps out at you. It catches your attention. It's that word, hate. I mean, you hear that word and you immediately think, that, that is not right. I mean, come on. And if you were, weren't listening, you probably started listening then. And like you hear that, and you think, well, this has got to be a bad translation. I mean, surely the ESV just completely screwed this whole thing up. And so you go and you, you, you get a bunch of other translations. And you know what you find? Is they literally, almost all of them, use the same word, hate. 
And then you think, well, this can't be in the original language, right? I mean, this can't be in the Greek. Like, there's no way. We need to do a word study. We need to do some more research. And so you do all that. And at the end of that, you know what you're going to find? Lo and behold, hate means hate. And so now you're really confused because what about all the verses in the Bible that tell us to honor our father and mother, to love our spouses and our children? Here what Jesus does is he says, hate the people that you love the most. Hate your parents, hate your spouses, hate your kids, hate your siblings, and oh yeah, hate yourself. And so is Jesus contradicting the rest of the Bible and even what he himself says in other places? Well, no, I don't think so. And so what is he doing? What's going on? I think what Jesus is doing is he is exaggerating on purpose to make a very powerful point. What he does is he takes our most treasured earthly relationships, our parents, our spouses, our children, our siblings, and then even me. And he takes all those things and he compares them to himself. And so on the one hand, you have our treasured earthly relationships. And then on the other, you have Jesus, the Son of God, the infinite, eternal creator of the heavens and the earth that literally holds your existence in his hand. And the only reason you're breathing is because of him. And so Jesus invites us to look at your earthly relationships in light of me. And suddenly, when you take your most treasured relationships on this earth and you look at them in comparison to Jesus, suddenly something starts happening to these treasured relationships on this earth. Suddenly, in comparison to Jesus, they begin to look like hate. It's like I can say, I love coffee and I love my wife. And she's like, you better watch what you're about to say. <laughs> and so, is it both? Which one is it? And if I take my love for coffee, I mean, I love coffee. I get up, I drink it every morning, it delights my soul. But I love my wife. And so when I take my love for coffee, and suddenly I compare it to my love for wife, my wife, something starts happening to that love for coffee. It's not even the same. Like my love for my wife is in a completely different universe. It's miles and miles and miles above my love for coffee. Suddenly, when I look at my wife and I look at coffee, the coffee begins to become literally disgusting. In comparison to my wife, it's literally like a pile of trash. And that's what Jesus is driving at. You see, there's this place in my heart where I seek deep and ultimate and everlasting satisfaction. And if I put Jesus in that place, and he's the one that I supremely long for, he's the delight of my soul above everything else on this planet, that 
is what you call worship. And that's what Jesus is driving at in this passage. But if I take my wife and I put her in that place in my heart, and she becomes the one that I seek ultimate satisfaction and delight and joy in above anything else, that is what you call idolatry. And that is what Jesus is fighting at in this verse. And that's why he uses the word hate. You know, and you might think, well, couldn't he have used a different word? Couldn't he have just said, love me more? Love everyone else less? I mean, he could have. But do you feel how it wouldn't quite shock you like it does when he uses the word hate? And that's his point. Like, do you feel that? Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, wake up. Like, I'm not your mom. I'm not your dad. I'm not your wife. I'm not your kids. I'm not your brother. I'm not your sister. I am the son of God. Like, do you feel that? He's God. And it's, it's like he's drawing this line in the sand. And it's like, you either treasure me above everything else on this universe, or you're not my disciple. Like, that's what he's saying. Now look at verse 27. He gives another picture. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The people in this crowd that heard Jesus say those words, they would have instantly been shocked. When we hear this, it's not quite that way. Like, I've got to go get a book, look at a picture of a cross, do a lot of research, and eventually, hopefully, I'll arrive at the point Jesus is making. The people sitting Listening to Jesus, like, they didn't have to do that at all. This was instantly personal and instantly shocking to them. When they hear Jesus say cross, all of them immediately picture in their minds a Roman cross. This is how the Roman Empire executed criminals. They hung them on a cross and they crucified them. And that's what these people would have pictured in their minds. The whole process of crucifixion, the pain was not just horrendous, but the whole experience was utterly shameful and humiliating. And what you have to realize is there would have been people more than likely in this crowd listening to Jesus that they would have seen with their own eyes a crucifixion. Like they would have witnessed one. And they hear Jesus say these words, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and come after me. When the people in this crowd heard Jesus say those words, they would have immediately thought of what was called the death march. And what was that? Well, when the Roman government condemned a person to die by crucifixion, they would take the crossbar, which would be the horizontal part of the cross that your hands would later be nailed to. They would take that part of the cross 
and they would throw it on the person's back. And then they would force them to march through the streets of the city to the outside of town where they would then be crucified. That was what this was called. This was the death march. And what it was, it was a way that the Roman Empire used to utterly shame and humiliate people. I mean, it was, this whole thing was a public spectacle. People would come out, they would line both sides of the street, they would laugh, they would mock, they would spit, they would humiliate this person. Because essentially what's happening is everyone knows that this person carrying this cross through the streets, they're literally a dead man walking through the streets. That's why it was called the death march. And so Jesus says to these people, if you want to follow me, if you want to have faith in me, what your life is going to look like is essentially a death march through this world day in and day out. That's going to be the regular occurrence of your life. And so what does Jesus mean? Well, I think what he means is a few things. I think that, number one, suffering is normal. It's normal to him. It's not this thing where it's just someone that moves across the world and becomes a missionary and dies. I mean, did you ever realize that Jesus is sovereign and he knew that all of us would be living in a relatively safe place in America when he said this? Like, he knew that. But the reality is, to follow Jesus means that we will face opposition, shame, and humiliation, suffering, and maybe even death. Jesus says all of those things are normal. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus through this earth. And so the reality is, if you think about the message of the gospel, to tell a person that everything you love, everything you treasure, everything you hold dear is wrong. It's completely wrong. It's so wrong that if you continue on the course you're going, you are going to go to hell. Like, Jesus says not everyone is going to believe. And so to take that message, no matter where you live on this earth, there's going to be opposition. And so Jesus says... It's either you're not my disciple or we have to create this other classification of a disciple and we have to call that person the hiding disciple. And Jesus really doesn't have any place for that category. And the longer and the longer you remain in that category of the hiding disciple it would furnish more and more and more evidence of what Jesus says. 
that you cannot be my disciple. So now you come to verse 28 through verse 32. And so Jesus invites us to think about what I just said. Consider what it looks like to follow me. And so he gives in verse 28 through verse 30 this picture of a person that would go out and build a tower. You see that in verse 28. And he says, This person that builds a tower, do they not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And so if you're going to go out and you're going to build something, you're first going to sit down and you're going to determine how much money do you have and how much is it going to cost to build this tower. And Jesus says you need to stop and think that what's going to happen if you don't have enough money to complete this tower. Well, he goes on in verse 29 and he says, otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, he's not going to be able to finish. You're going to build a foundation and you're going to run out of money. And the foundation is going to sit there and weeds are going to grow up and everyone he says, all who see it at the end of verse 29 begin to mock, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So you have a situation where people come to Jesus not for Jesus, not because he's the most supremely valuable treasure in the universe, you have this situation where people come to Jesus because of the benefits Jesus can give them. He can forgive me. He can give me a home in heaven, a place of no sin and no pain and no death. And all that's great and wonderful and all that's true. But if you simply come to Jesus for the benefits and not for Jesus, what happens is, what's going to happen is your life is going to look like, verse 26 in verse 27, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer. And Jesus invites us to stop and think and consider what it's going to look like to follow me. And what happens, that person begins to suffer, and they're, this isn't what I signed up for. And so they forsake Jesus and they go the other way. And what Jesus wants us to understand is they were never my disciples. Now in verse 31 and in verse 32, he gives another picture. This picture is a little different. It, it's a picture of two kings that go to war against each other. He says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And so here you have a king with 20,000 soldiers, and he's going to go to war with the king that has 10,000 soldiers. The king with 10,000 soldiers has to ask himself, can I win? Well, no. There's no way he's going to win. And so if you look at the end of verse 32, this king with 20,000 soldiers will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. He knows the king with 10,000 soldiers cannot win. And so he's going to send men to ask him to surrender. And so here, 
this king with 10,000 soldiers needs to sit down and think and deliberate and count the cost. What's going to happen if I reject these terms of peace? If I reject these people coming to me asking me to surrender? What's going to happen? He's going to be utterly destroyed. That's what's going to happen. He's not going to win. And so I think what you have here is you have the other side of the same coin. The tower gives us the picture of counting the cost of following Jesus. It's going to be hard. It's going to be filled with suffering. On the other hand, this second analogy gives us the picture of what it will cost us to reject Jesus, to reject the grace that he offers. It will cost you everything. And so the reality is, whether you commit your life to Jesus or you reject him, it's still going to cost you everything. Look at verse 33. He says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so I think what he's doing here is he's taking verse 26 and verse 27 and he's saying it again in a different way just to make his point after he's given us these analogies of counting the cost. Renouncing all that he had would include hating your family and giving up a life of comfort and ease. But I think it also gives us a third picture of what it looks like to have faith in Jesus and follow him. The phrase here, all that he has, is a phrase used in the New Testament that almost always refers to your physical property, your stuff, your possessions. And so here Jesus gives us another way to know what it looks like to follow him and to have faith in him. He says, whoever does not renounce all your stuff cannot be my disciple. Does this mean that I need to quit my job? Josh is getting nervous. Sell everything I own, move off to some place where they don't know Jesus and spend the rest of my life telling them about Jesus. Is that what this means? Maybe. It very well could. But here's the thing. I think it actually means a whole lot more than that. Well, how is that? The problem that we have with this verse is we come to it as wealthy middle-class Americans. And so here's the problem. The people that are in this crowd listening to Jesus say these words, they're not wealthy middle-class Americans. Many of them are poor. They don't really have anything. Many of them are the outcasts of society. They're there following Jesus around because he's the only one in the world that has compassion on them. And so if I quit my job, I sell everything I own, I move wherever, well, at the very least, I'm at least going to need a tent and some food. 
even if I've got to go out every day and gather that food. And so the problem you have now is you've done that, and you're living in a tent somewhere, and you're getting your food scrounging around. You've just now reached the point to where many of the people in this passage are at when Jesus says these things to them. Like, Do you feel that? Jesus looks the poor person straight in the eyes, and he doesn't flinch, and he says, unless you do not renounce everything you have, you can't be my disciple. So what in the world does he mean? I think he has to mean at least two things. Whatever he means, it's permanent. The word renounce has that idea. It's a permanent thing. It's something you're doing permanently with your possessions. It's not, I sell everything here, I move somewhere else, and I buy some more stuff. This is a permanent mindset of how you view your stuff. And then the second thing, it's everything. Everything. It's not just the things, it's everything except what you would consider the things you have to live on. It's those things too. It's everything. All your stuff. I think what Jesus has in mind is in the first century, there was someone that was called a steward or a manager, a household manager. What they were is someone, a wealthy landowner, would come and they would hire this person. And they would come and they would live in their master's house. And they would take care of all their master's belongings. And so they would do that every day. But the reality was they didn't own anything. Nothing was theirs. All they were doing was managing for their master all of his things. And so I think what Jesus wants us to feel in this passage is that essentially we've come under new management. Like there's one thing and one thing in the world that he wants us to grip and to cling so tightly that we would never, ever let go of, and that's him. Everything else we're to hold with an open hand. When we cling so tightly to Jesus, like it, it doesn't matter what it is. We'll let it go. Because essentially... It's not ours. I've renounced everything and I'm following Jesus. And so my time, it's not my time anymore. My stuff is not my stuff anymore. It's His. He's the one that holds ultimate control of my heart. Now look at verse 34. Jesus concludes everything with a very serious and sobering warning. And you're like, I thought this was already serious. It says in verse 34, salt is good. The people that heard this, they could agree with that. They knew salt was good. You could put it on food.
food that didn't taste very good. You could put it on meat to preserve it. You could put it on the soil for fertilizer. You could put it on a wound. There were a lot of things you could do with salt. So everyone knew salt was good. Then Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What do you do with tasteless salt? Well, the reality is there's no such thing. Salt never, ever, ever becomes unsalty. It doesn't. So what does Jesus mean? Well, at this particular time, there was a very common thing that would happen. There was a hybrid form of salt. It was half salt, half jimson. And so the problem was it, it wasn't real salt. It was fake salt. But if you put it next to real salt, you couldn't tell. There was no way you could tell. They didn't have a microscope. They couldn't analyze it. The only way they could tell is they would have to take it and use it. They had to put it on their food, put it on a wound. They had to just go out and use it. And when they used it, and it didn't work, it didn't preserve meat, it didn't make the food taste better, well, they would realize they had gotten a batch of the fake salt. And that's what Jesus is referring to. Salt that loses its taste, he's referring to this fake salt. And so he asks the question then, what do you do with this kind of salt? He says it's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. Jesus says it's worthless. You can't do anything with fake salt. And to prove his point, he brings up two of the lowliest uses of salt known to people. I mean, you, there was kind of this hierarchy of how you would use salt because it was very valuable. The two things that, I mean, when you exhausted all your other efforts, you would throw it on the dirt because it would fertilize the soil, but that was never your first option. And then the last thing you would ever do is you would throw it on the manure pile. My wife is grimacing. And so at this particular time period, you didn't have indoor plumbing. And so you went to the bathroom in a bucket. And then you took the bucket outside somewhere and you threw it in a pile. Well, it obviously was pretty rank. And so they would get salt and they would throw it on that manure pile to knock down some of the smell. And Jesus says, fake salt can't even do that. You can't even throw it on a worthless manure pile and expect it to do anything. And then he says, all you can do is throw it away. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's contrasting a genuine disciple with a fake disciple. The person that is basically everything he's just said with the person that looks like on the outside they are what he's just said. But the reality is it's all a facade. It's fake. And so what Jesus 
wants these people to hear and what he wants us to hear is if you haven't truly committed your heart and your life to Jesus, you're not fooling him. Jesus has absolutely no worth for the person that will not wholeheartedly commit their life to him. You're worthless to him until you give your heart and your life to him. So what in the world do we do with a passage like this? I mean, you'd think Theopolis, for example, the person that this whole book is addressed to, he sits down, you know, he's going along in his scroll, and he gets to this passage. What, what does he do? What's he think the first time he reads this? Well, I know what he probably didn't think. He probably didn't think, Man, is Jesus worth all of this? I don't think he thought that at all. Because the reality is, that's a question he would have already answered. He knows that Jesus is worth everything. He knows that. That's why he became a Christian in the first place. Because Jesus is the greatest treasure he could ever no. And so what does Theophilus do when he reads this? I think he reads this, he puts the scroll down, and he thinks to himself, there's no way. Maybe he's already experienced some of what Jesus is saying. But he looks ahead in his life after reading this vivid description of Jesus telling him essentially what the rest of his life is going to look like, I think he pushes that scroll back and he thinks, there's no way in and of myself I can ever live like this. So what does he do? Well, he runs to Jesus. He clings to Jesus. He goes to the all-surpassing wonder and love and grace of Jesus. He really doesn't have any other option. He knows in and of himself he cannot live the way Jesus is calling to. He can't just try a little harder, you know, put a little muscle in the thing. Like he knows he will never, ever do that. And so... He runs to Jesus. That's what this passage is calling you as a Christian to do. I mean, we can look at our lives. We can come away from this passage and, I mean, you want to talk about a guilt trip. This whole thing is inviting us and calling us to run to Jesus. He calls you to something you can't do on your own. And that's the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. What do you do with something like this if you're not a Christian? Well, I think what you're asking is, is Jesus worth this? And that's a legitimate question to ask because if he's not, this whole thing is utter foolishness. In Philippians chapter 3, 
in verse 8, Paul says this. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is Jesus worth your life? Is he worth everything? I'm not going to convince you of that. I mean, I can point you to the Bible, and that's what it says. You see, the Apostle Paul could look at Jesus, and he could look at everything else in this life. And he could see very clearly that the greatest thing in the world was Jesus, the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That's the greatest treasure in the universe. And see, Paul could look at Jesus and he could see that and suddenly everything else on the earth compared to Jesus is a pile of trash. It's filth. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would beg and plead with you, just don't waste your life. Don't waste your life chasing after the filth and the trash in this earth. There will come a day when you will stand before the almighty God of this universe and you will know without a doubt if you spent your life rejecting Jesus that you utterly wasted your whole life. And so I would plead with you, you can turn right now where you sit. You can repent of your sins. You can trust in Jesus, and he will save you. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to love Jesus, to delight in Jesus, that he would be the one that we would get lost in, that we would daydream about Jesus, that he would be the one that captures our very soul and all of our affections, that we would cling to him and that we would follow him wherever he might lead us. And I pray, Father, for all the people in this room. I pray if there was someone here that does not know you, that you would do a mighty and a wonderful miracle in their heart and you would open their heart and help them see the all-surpassing worth of your son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.